And to kind of set this up, I want to share an experience that happened to me when I was in Israel. I had an opportunity to go to Israel with about 30 uh, pastors from across the country. Uh, some of Andy Stanley's youth staff, uh, Louis Giglio's youth staff was on this trip. Uh, people on the East Coast, people on the West Coast, inner city pastors, inner city ministry leaders, urban ministry leaders, a diverse group of these pastors who come from all different contexts got to go to Israel. And one of the most powerful stories that emerged from this trip, and you can put a picture up on the screen, the first picture there, uh, just behind me, I know you can't see it, these are some of the guys I went with, but just behind me is actually the old city of David. It's where David's palace would have been. It's where David would have seen Bathsheba. It's where in Psalms 121 where it says, where does my help come from but to look to the hills? My help comes from the Lord. If you're standing in the palace where David is, what's surrounding you is hills. Like scripture comes alive when you're in Israel. You see the geographical uh, outlines of different things and you watch as the Bible comes to life. But probably the most powerful story that ended up emerging is uh, we got invited to go to the Holocaust Museum. And the Holocaust Museum is called Yad Vashem. And in this museum, it's about an hour long or as long as you want to stay, and they take you on a journey where the numbers of people killed no longer are numbers, but the numbers that you hear about now have faces and they now have stories. And as you're walking through the Holocaust, you get this sense of pure evil and pure wickedness and it's a horrible, I mean, it moves you emotionally, and you get through it, and you just feel this weight. You feel this heaviness on you when you leave, and no one's really talking to each other. Everyone's just kind of still because you saw murder. You saw gas chambers. You saw these different things. You saw cruelty. You saw young children being abused. You saw stories of young kids being separated from mom and dad, and you see the realities that existed through wickedness and war and hatred and things that went on in World War II, and that was powerful, but the most powerful moment is when a Jewish family invited 30 pastors from America into their house. And as we're sitting in the house, we're enjoying what's called a Shabbat meal. A Shabbat meal means Sabbath, a Sabbath meal. On Friday night, they shut down, the city goes dark. The family prepares the meal in advance uh, so that they don't have to work. Like, they have timers on their lights, so the lights go off so they don't even flip a light switch. And the father and mother with their couple young children host all these pastors in this small home. It's this intimate setting, and the Jewish father looks at the American pastors and says, would you please tell us what's been your most powerful experience here in Israel? Would you please share with my family? And they brought out wine and grape juice for those who didn't drink, and we got to enjoy a meal together. And I captured uh, some footage of this, uh, of the Shabbat meal, as they sing a couple songs. They honor the mom and the family. Go ahead and play this 12-second video of what a Sabbath meal looks like. Those are the two little boys there, two children. Some of the pastors, that's the Jewish father on the right. And so I found out the reason why the two young boys kept looking at me is because you're not supposed to have cell phones at all in a Shabbat meal. And here I am, this naive American with this cell phone out, like, this is awesome. This is amazing. And the Jewish family's trying not to, like, disrespect me, you could tell. The boys are like, what are you doing? And it was a fun, amazing experience. But the moment I will never, ever forget, I'll never forget it, most powerful moment, and it's the kind of stories we really don't see very much today is one of my buddies who's a pastor in New York City, 
I found out his backstory after the plot, and he actually is an immigrant from Germany. And when he came over to America with his family, he recalls going up to his grandfather's attic where he stored all his World War II memorabilia, and he saw the Nazi uniform. And the grandpa explained how he hated the Jews and how he was so happy he was able to partake in killing Jews and all these different things. And this young German grandson of his is now my age, 33, 34 years old. And when it's time for this guy to get up and share what his most powerful experience was, my friend from New York City, a born and raised German from Germany, migrated here to America. He gets up, and he can barely speak. Like he can barely talk. And he says, today I went through Yed Vashem. And he said, it broke my heart to see what my grandfather did to these people. And he begins to just, like, through tears. Like, he can barely make it. Like, he can barely share he looks at the Jewish father, he looks at the Jewish mother and the kids. The mom is crying, listening to this German share this story. The kids are crying. Because the families in Jewish culture, they know their history. It's been a displaced people group, a persecuted people group. And this German, fumbling through his words, he says, I just want to say I'm so sorry for what my people did to your people. And I want to ask for forgiveness because what I saw today I'll never forget. And your stories are real, and I'm so sorry for what my grandfather did to you. And this family, like, you could hear a pin drop. And then every pastor in the room is crying. The Jewish family who didn't even expect this, the mother starts breaking down and saying, you have no idea how much this means to me. You have no idea what this does for me and my family. And the Jewish father I, was just stoic, not crying, not really saying anything. And the German walks over to him. And he puts out his arm and says, can I give you a hug? And he gives him this big hug and they both embrace each other. And the final comments from the Jewish father at the end of the meal is this. He said, thank you so much for coming into my home. But he said, the thing I'll never forget about this meeting is this man who apologized on behalf of his grandfather to my family. He said, that was the most moving moment for me. And I'll never forget that moment. Those are the stories that really don't get celebrated. But every time I'm around a story of forgiveness, I can't help but see Jesus every time through the story of forgiveness. I can't help but be drawn to the fragrance of it. I can't help but be drawn to stories like that. And today, some of us in the room, when you hear the word forgiveness, it brings up different feelings, different emotions. Sometimes it, when you hear the word forgiveness, your first thought is, yuck, like I'd never do that. Like, I, I would never, ever come to that point for this person in my life. And it's like all these different emotions resurrect when you hear the word forgiveness. Or maybe you're sitting there today thinking, yeah, I don't know if I'll ever for be able to forgive myself and all these different things. And the passage I want to lead us to today spells out in the most beautiful way this piece of the diamond that Greg's talking about of the gospel in this word called forgiveness. It starts in John chapter 8. In the beginning of John chapter 8, it says that Jesus went to the temple courts to go teach people. And what's really dope is in the temple courts, uh, there are these steps in Jerusalem that would have led up to the temple, the southern steps. And I should have brought a picture. In fact, I'll take it back. The very first picture you saw, me and those two buddies were standing on the exact southern steps where Jesus often would have sat people down to teach people. We're standing in the very place where Jesus would have taught 
And here we set the stage and we set the scene in that Jesus is teaching to this crowd of people. People want to hear Jesus teach. So you got a good amount of people there. And so Jesus is in the middle of teaching. They're at the temple. All these people are around. And then in verse 3, it says this. It says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So what's going on right now is Jesus is in the middle of teaching. He could be sitting. He could be standing. But there's a crowd of people there. And now all of a sudden this scene turns into a peaceful scene to now Jerry Springer and his TV show host just showed up. And they're about to find out the DNA of someone's child like it's going crazy and bonkers everybody's on the edge of their seat everybody wonder what's gonna happen everybody knows this woman was caught in the act of adultery if you were caught in the act of adultery you were to be stoned and some of y'all who didn't grow up in church be like that would be a dope like persecution I love to be stoned like it's not the get high kind of stoned, okay? It's not let's smoke the marijuana leaves and let's get them high and let them do what they want. I'm not talking about that kind of stoning. The stoning that a Jewish person would receive is the witness who caught him would bring another witness. They would have their hands tied behind their back. They would go to a cliff and they would push the person off the cliff. If they did not die on impact, this is where the stoning comes in, they would pick up large stones and chuck them over on the cliff and each person would do that. If the person survived the stoning, they saw it as an act of mercy from God that this person lived. And so the punishment for a woman who was caught in the act of adultery was to be stoned. So the tension right now is at an all-time high. Everybody's on the edge of their seat. The person that was dozing off, listening to Jesus teach, all of a sudden just got shooken up by his brother. Be like, yo, wake up. We about to witness something crazy. Get up. Everybody's there and the tension's thick. And I love how Jesus responds in the tension. I love his actual posture. Sometimes your actions speak louder than your words. And sometimes your posture speaks a meaning way more than a word ever could. And it says this. It says they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. And I love what verse, seven, verse the remaining of verse 6 says, says this. But Jesus bent down. This is so dope. Ooh, ooh. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. The tension's at an all-time high. If there's anybody that's going to respond right away, it's going to be Jesus. But his response, rather than using verbal language, is he just gets down in the dirt and just starts to write. Everybody in their mind got to be thinking to themselves, why is Jesus doing this? Why is he writing in the ground? Why isn't he addressing the issue? And the Pharisees and these religious leaders have stones in their hands. Notice the posture of Jesus and notice the posture of the religious leaders. The posture of Jesus is one of an advocate and the posture of the religious leaders is one of accusers. But their whole basis was to try to get Jesus in a trap. And in verse 7 it says this, when they kept on questioning him, meaning they kept saying, hey, yo, Jesus, do you not hear us? We're asking you a question. We're waiting for your response. When they kept on asking Jesus the question, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. This is so amazing. And here's why. It's because in the middle of playing in the sand, it's like Jesus rises up like he's had enough and says, okay, here's the deal. How about any person without sin, you can throw the fourth stone at her. 
In other words, if you're taking notes today, point number one is this, is every single person needs forgiveness. Because every single person knows what it means to sin. Every single person knows what it means to lie, to screw up, to do bad things, to hurt people. In fact, if you want to hear more about sin, Pastor Greg gave, Pastor Greg gave an amazing message last Sunday about sin. Go check it out. But all of us, if you took a look at our life and played the camera and pressed play on the highlight reel of our life from the moment you were born to where you are right now, every single one of us in the room has a track record. We have a past. We have a history. We have moments where we've messed up. We have moments where we've done the wrong thing even when we know we shouldn't. And Jesus levels the playing field as if to say this, you want to be God? You want to throw a stone at her? You want to be the judge of her life? Here's the deal. You are not worthy to throw one stone at her because the sin in your own life discounts you from even having that opportunity. Every person in the room today needs forgiveness because every single person in the room knows what it means to be in sin. Or have sin. Romans says it this way, that every single person born was born into sin. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Every single person knows what it means to sin. And these accusers, these Pharisee leaders, they grab stones and they are ready to chuck it at this lady. And they have these heavy stones and they're ready to bring her out. They got her tied up, caught in the act of adultery, and they're ready to throw it. But let me just say this. A lot of us look at this story and be like, wow, that's kind of brutal. But if we're really honest in the room, maybe you and I aren't too far off from living a life ready to stone people. In fact, if we're really honest in the room, maybe we can resonate more carrying stones in our life ready to hurt the people who hurt us. Willing to play judge in somebody else's life when Jesus levels the whole playing field and says... Hey, let those without sin throw the first stone. Could you hand me the bag, Greg? I want to help illustrate this in a way that you can understand. I want to walk really practical in our life today and what it can look like. But this bag oftentimes represents our life. It's a cool accessory. It kind of accentuates us a little bit. I don't know. Not, this bag probably not for me so much. But, uh, but life can be like this. We're going around in life and... Uh, all of a sudden, it gets real real in your life. Where your dad walks up into your life, he loves you, but all of a sudden, your dad leaves you for another woman, or your dad hurts you, or your dad takes advantage of you. And now, if I were to ask you about your dad today, you'd be like, yeah, forget my dad. I don't even know him. In fact, he's in jail right now, and I'm really happy he's in jail. I hope he rots in jail. And it's like, what comes out of your mouth are stones. Because of the hurt that you've received and the person that's taken advantage of you. And I might not see the stones outwardly in your life, but the stones are probably hiding somewhere in your life. And what comes out are stones through your words. But some of you know what it's like to have a dad or mom mistreat you or hurt you or watch your dad or mom leave you or abandon you or taken advantage of you. And if you're not careful, we can find our spots just like the Pharisees had, ready to throw a stone at the people that hurt us or did us wrong. Think about this one. Knowing it's like to have a girlfriend or a spouse cheat on you. 
And they said that I do, and they said they'd never cheat on you, but they took advantage of you, or they got emotionally involved with someone, or they got physically involved, or maybe it was a one-night hookup, and now it's destroyed things inside of you. It's destroyed your trust, and it's now, rather than releasing it to God, now it's another stone that you hold on to because you know what it's like to live with the pain, and the pain keeps going on in your life. Maybe it's not that, but maybe it's a family member, a grandparent that you absolutely despise and hate. In fact, you hate family get-togethers because every time you're around family, you remember the abuse that you went through and the abuse that was done to you and the inappropriate things that were said to you, the inappropriate touching. And it's like when that takes place, it's like this stone, if it's not released over to God, it's like it grows in our life. And now we have a stone of accusation. And the minute I bring up that person's name, it's like we just want to slander and hurt and accuse. Maybe it's it's not that. Maybe it's a boss at your work. You're thinking about quitting your job because the way your boss treats you isn't fair or isn't right. And now all of a sudden you got ammunition because if the boss comes to you one more time, you can't wait to take it out on him. Maybe it's a sibling, a brother, a sister, and the way they treated you or the way they treated your child. And because they messed with your child, now you got beef with them and now you got issues with them. And the next time you see your sibling, you can't wait to take the stone out, crush them over the head with it because of what they did to you and how they treated you over your life. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's someone in the church today. Maybe it's someone in the room right now. Or maybe they go to this church, but they're not actually here today. But someone in the church hurt you. Someone in the church took advantage of you. Someone in the church said something to you. And now you got problems with that person. You don't want to see them. You don't want to walk by them. You don't want to interact with them because they better not interact with me. Because if they're going to interact with me, they're going to get a full force of me. And I can't wait to pull out my stone and keep bashing them over and over and over again. And it might not show it outwardly, but inwardly it's there. Or maybe an unexpected one. Maybe it's you. And you can't forgive yourself. And you keep hurting yourself with your own stones, with the things you've done in your life. And you keep replaying memories from your past. And all it's doing is destroying and hurting. Or maybe it's not yourself. But maybe it's God. You have something up with God. Because how would God allow all of these stones and to happen to you because if God is real loving if God is all caring how in the world would he let you go through what you went through and now you got beef with God and maybe the stones you want to throw if you can pull it out today and it's hard for you to sit through is God and right now I can walk around okay with this bag on me but come check on me three years from now if this bag is still attached to me all of a sudden, I need hip surgery. All of a sudden, I need back surgery. Now, all of a sudden, I have a permanent limp. And what's happening is the unforgiveness and stones I carry in my heart is literally destroying me. It's killing me. I can't function. I can't be the same. I can't love the same. I can't trust the same. And what comes out of my mouth are constantly the stones. It's constantly the hate. I can't wait to accuse. I can't wait to catch this person doing wrong again because it's going to justify the hate I feel in my life. Unforgiveness will always breed hate inside your life, and it will always destroy you. 
It puts you and I in a position God never wanted us to be in. God is a big God. God is a just God. God will judge every person on this earth. And you and I were never meant to play the role of God. We weren't meant to say yes or no and hurt and hate. But we're called to do what God calls us to do, which is to forgive. Which if you're taking notes, you see clearly happens in the text. Your next point is this, is Jesus freely forgives you. I want to thank the company in Burnsville that had these stones outside their building as I drove by this morning. Allowed me to pick them up <laughs> as their business was closed. No one was around. Thank you, business in Burnsville Parkway. I'm Burnsville. I will return those to you right after this. You see, Jesus freely forgives you. Jesus goes on to say, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. It's so good. So good. Jesus on the ground with his finger had enough of the Pharisees' accusations, gets up, looks at them and says, you without sin, why don't you throw the first stone? After he says that, Jesus gets back down on the ground and starts writing again. He hasn't looked at the woman. He hasn't addressed her and her guiltiness, her sin, the judgment she did. He hasn't even looked at her. He dealt with the religious first. He dealt with the Pharisees. And then it says this in the text. It says, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. One stone after another thrown down, the older ones going first. Probably the older ones went first because they know more about their past than the younger ones do. Throwing their stones down, everybody walks away. Jesus gets to a moment where no one is around. No one who is there for the teaching, no one who is there to stone her and accuse her, and he gets a one-on-one -on -one moment with her. And I love what Jesus says to her in question form. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, by the way, woman, and this language was actually a sign of respect. When Jesus says the word woman here, it was out of respect. It was a respectful term. He says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? I listen to what I love about Jesus. He wants the woman to look around to realize that not one single person is around or left, which means this. All of your accusers that wanted you dead, they are all gone. It was as if Jesus wanted a visual picture physically before he dealt with her heart spiritually. He wanted her to see all the naysayers out of her life to remember the moment that there are no more accusations against her. For those who are in Christ Jesus are not condemned. And Jesus came to save the world, not to condemn the world. It was like a visual picture he wanted her to take in. Why don't you look around? And can you imagine the shame to be exposed publicly, her shaking her, fearing for her life? And then Jesus says this, then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Everybody left. It was just Jesus and her. This woman deserved punishment, but she freely received forgiveness. Isn't that the gospel right there? 
Isn't that the good news about you and I? Is the things that we've so easily done, the things we find ourselves getting tripped up in, the things we always go back to, yet Jesus time and time again is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all our sin. Time and time again, Jesus freely forgives you. And know what I can't help but think about is when the accusers showed up to accuse this woman. The whole time when Jesus is writing in the ground is I wonder if Jesus saw a foretasting picture of going to the cross for the very woman's shame and disgrace. And it would be Jesus getting nailed in his body, nailed to a cross, a crown of thorns, a crown of thorns put on him. I wonder if the punishment she so deserved, Jesus foreshadowed it to where he was going to get the punishment she deserved put on himself. That's love. That's forgiveness. And when Jesus looks at her and says, yeah, you're right. No one here is to condemn you and neither do I. Jesus knew the punishment he would take was going to be enough to cover a multitude of sins forever. Let me remind you sitting here today of what Psalm 103 says. Because some of us, we aren't forgiving ourselves. We haven't forgiven ourselves. We still hold it over ourselves. We still beat ourselves up. And Jesus demonstrated his forgiveness to this woman and the woman to forgive herself. And in Psalm 103 verse 2 it says, Praise the Lord my soul. Forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins. Heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in love. Did we not see that play out with the woman caught in adultery? He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Did he not just do that with the woman caught in adultery? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Can we be reminded of the forgiveness, the free, freely given forgiveness that he has for each and every one of us? I was on an airplane headed to Virginia in September, and I'm sitting there in the, the window seat, and this girl is sitting next to me in her 20s, and a uh, flight attendant comes around, says, what would you like to drink, and got our drink orders, and I'm just chilling there with the book, and this girl, like, has her full cup of water sitting right here on her little stand, and she does this to move the page in her book, and her hand comes and knocks her full cup of water all over this region, okay? I just, I'm not, you get the picture, okay? All over. And she immediately goes, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. Oh, my word. I'm, she was, like, freaking out. And I'm like, if I freak out, this situation is going to get really weird fast. And so I'm just like, oh, it's fine. No, no, no worries. She goes, I'm so sorry. And I go, hey, look, I forgive you. Like, it's okay. I forgive you. And she kept going, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And it's like, no, no, no. I forgive you. 
And she kept going on and on. Like 10 minutes later, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I just said, hey, I forgive you, but is it all right if I just go to the bathroom and maybe dry off? She's like, fine. And let me just tell you, going to the bathroom with a huge wet stain in your area is fun. It's fun to see what people say. And they look at you like, honey, look at this guy. He's coming down the aisle. Look at his wet spot. Honey, he just wet himself. He's a young guy. I can't believe he did that. Honey, look at him. And then when you see the person who does this and then does this and looks at you, and you look at them back and you're like, hey, it's cool to do this. You didn't know? Cool people do this. Everybody does it. You're not doing it yet? You should do it. It's fun to do it. Join me. And then I go sit back down from the bathroom and she goes, I am so sorry. And I said, hey, I forgive you. It's okay. You don't need to say sorry anymore. How many times are we like that with God? I'm so sorry, God. I forgave you. You're free. I'm so sorry. I already forgave you. You're free. And yet we keep going back to Jesus for the same thing that he's already forgiven us for. It's okay. Be free. Yet we're so hard on ourselves, ready to pull out stones to us when Jesus freely forgives you. And at this point in the sermon, it sounds kind of rosy. It sounds kind of nice. We're like, oh, this is cool. You know, everybody needs forgiveness. Well, Jesus freely forgives me. Oh, that's so great. You know, you want to know when it gets really real for your life? And this is our big so what today. When it gets really real is when forgiven people forgive people. This is when it gets really real. Now I'm about to walk up into your business. How can we go to God? Say, God, forgive me for what I've done. God, forgive me for what I take place. And then someone hurts us and we're like, screw them, God, forget them. Did we all of a sudden forget how much God has forgiven us? Did we forget our place where we were is so wicked and so sinful to where now all of a sudden we've taken God's place? Because forgiven people will forgive people. Because they know what it means to be forgiven of much. And those who've been forgiven of much love to forgive back. Because they know what it's like to have their own sin in their life. And one of the most scariest passages that I could ever preach from is what Jesus says. And when Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, he says, God, forgive us of our trespasses and forgive those who trespass against us. In that prayer, Jesus is teaching every day, pray like this. God, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us this daily our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The prime theme in Jesus' prayer, one of them is forgiveness. God, forgive me for what I've done wrong today, but God, allow me to forgive those who've wronged me. And as he finishes Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, if you do not forgive those who sin against you, my Father in heaven will not forgive you. And that right there may perhaps be the scariest passage in all of scripture that Jesus preaches. You're telling me that if I don't forgive somebody, that Jesus won't forgive me? Yes, that's what I'm telling you. And that's not my words. Those are Jesus' words. Jesus, innocent man, Pontius Pilate, couldn't find anything wrong with him, goes to the cross. And what comes out of the mouth of Christ as he's being hung on a tree for our sins? What does he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
You want to know what the kingdom of God looks like? It doesn't mean getting back at someone who's hurt you. It doesn't mean to retaliate and punch back. It doesn't mean to fight with power and greed. God came to set up a kingdom that was an upside-down kingdom, one who prays for your enemies, one who loves your enemies, one who forgives those who hurt you. God came to set up a different kind of kingdom, one in which the world does not operate in, and when they see the kingdom of God, they can't fathom it. They can't make sense of it because Jesus modeled it from the day he showed up on earth to the day he was resurrected into heaven with his father. Forgiveness. Jesus forgave the very murderers who put him on the cross and he was innocent. That right there is the act of the gospel. God gave him a chance. God, I believe they can come to you. Forgiveness at its core is redemptive in nature. It believes in the story of redemption. It believes in the change of somebody else. But forgiveness leaves the weight of somebody's doing to you at the foot of the cross and allows God to deal with them. So you no longer need to carry the bag of stones around your neck. It frees you. I brought a story today via video that we're going to show in a little bit of somebody who demonstrated an act of forgiveness. And you'll hear how she shares it. Take a look at this video. We end tonight with one of the most potent powers on earth. It can change lives in an instant. Everyone has it. It's the power to forgive. Watch it now in action in Steve Hartman's Assignment America. Thank you, Lord. In a small apartment building in North Minneapolis, Thank a 59-year-old teacher's aide sings praise to God for no seemingly apparent reason. Indeed, if anyone was to have issues with the Lord, it would be Mary Johnson. For all you've done for me. He never had a chance. In February 1993, Mary's son, Loramian Bird, was shot to death during an argument at a party. He was 20 and Mary's only child. My son was gone. The killer was a 16-year-old kid named O'Shea Israel. I wanted justice. He was an animal. He deserved to be caged. And he was. Tried as an adult and sentenced to 25 and a half years, O'Shea served 17 before being recently released. He now lives back in the old neighborhood, close to Mary. This close. He lives next door. Next door. How a convicted murderer ended up living a door jam away from his victim's mother is a story not of horrible misfortune, as you might expect, but of remarkable Mercy. A few years ago, Mary asked if she could meet O'Shea here at Minnesota's Stillwater State Prison. As a devout Christian, she felt compelled to see if there was some way, if somehow, she could forgive her son's killer. What'd she say to you? I believe the first thing she said was, look, you don't know me, I don't know you, let's just start with right now. And I was befuddled myself. O'Shea says they met regularly after that. When he got out, she introduced him to her landlord, who, with Mary's blessing, invited O'Shea to move into the building. Today, they don't just live close, they are close. Clearly, Mary was able to forgive. Unforgiveness is like cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's not about that other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. Yes, he murdered my son. But the forgiveness is for me. It's for me.
for O'Shea, it hasn't been that easy. I haven't totally forgiven myself yet. I'm learning how to forgive myself. And I'm still growing towards, you know, trying to forgive myself and what it is I've done. To that end, O'Shea is now busy proving himself to himself. He works at a recycling plant by day and goes to college by night. He says he's determined to pay back Mary's clemency by contributing to society. In fact, he's already working on it, singing the praises of God and forgiveness at prisons, churches, to large audiences everywhere. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. Which explains why Mary can sing her praise of thanks to her audience of one. Steve Hartman, CBS News. Minneapolis. For all you've done for me. She said, forgiveness doesn't change what he did. That happened. And the wounds of grief are real. She still mourns over her son, sees a picture of him, wondering what family get-togethers would be like. She said, but forgiveness is for me. I would argue that point slightly and say this, the forgiveness that was for her ended up being for him because God is using his past to recycle it for a story to redeem other people. For forgiveness like that to be true, it means the gospel's got to be true. It's got to be true. Otherwise, it's foolishness. Otherwise, it's stupid. It makes no sense. A young man took the stand this last week and looked at a murderer. She murdered his brother. It says, I want the best for you. God can forgive you. God can heal you. I forgive you. My brother would want you to know Christ. Can I give you a hug? That's foolishness. That's stupid. Why are you doing that to a murderer, a cop of all people? Why? Especially with the tension in society that exists. It's because the gospel lives in that young man's heart. The judge gets off the stand after the court's dismissed, and the judge ended up leading that woman to Christ right there. Forgiveness, it's, a, it's the story that's so beautiful. It's for every person. But when every person experiences the forgiveness they don't deserve from Christ, you cannot help but forgive other people. It doesn't mean what they did doesn't hurt. No, it hurts. It's like when Peter goes to Jesus, how many times should I forgive? How many times should I forgive this person? Seven times? Which seven in Jewish culture was a lot. The most you should forgive someone in Jewish culture was three times. Jesus says 77 times times seven. Meaning over and over and over and over and over and forgiveness is a repeated thing. The person that took advantage of you, it might be forgiveness today. It might mean forgiveness tomorrow. Forgiveness is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a choice. And my challenge today to lead you where you are right now is who is God asking you to forgive? Let him help you forgive. Scripture says if there's anybody in the room that you're at odds with, 
before coming to the altar, go to that person and seek reconciliation. Go and ask for forgiveness. If there's somebody in the room today that's hurt you, that's taken advantage of you, that spoke poorly of you, go find them today before you live and say, hey, would you forgive me? I'm sorry for what I've done. Maybe it's a mom and you need to write a letter to your mom. Maybe it's a father and you need to write a letter. Maybe it's your boss. The very shirt I'm wearing today was a man by the name of Dr. Martin Luther King who modeled leading people through forgiveness, through something called agape love, an intimate kind of love. As he preached a sermon talking about this agape kind of love of loving your enemies, praying for them, blessing them. It's God's way. It's Jesus' way. It doesn't make sense to people who don't know Jesus, but when you know Jesus, it makes complete sense. You know what the Holy Spirit's really good at? He's really good at shining a light in areas that are dark of your life. To bring them to light, to bring you to a place of healing. Some of you have migraine headaches today. You're not going to believe this. Some of you have migraine headaches today because of the unforgiveness that's in your life. Some of you have diseases in the room because of unforgiveness in your life. Unforgiveness breeds all kinds of bad chemicals in your body. Unforgiveness breeds a baggage of stones that you might not see outwardly, but inwardly you carry them around day by day and it gets tiring after a while. It gets hard after a while and then more stones fill up your bag and it destroys you physically, but destroys you mentally and spiritually. God made a way to forgive you freely. 